This is an RNZ podcast. Ram raids, smash and grabs committed by kids. On Q&A tomorrow, we'll ask the experts how to stop the alarming trend. That was Jack Tame introducing last Sunday's episode of Q&A. The program's report followed a week of alarming reports about the raids. Under the front page headline, They're Just Babies, last weekend's Herald on Sunday carried the Children's Commissioner's call for the government to step in and not to put young people on a path to prison. But it also carried a sidebar listing what it called kiddie crime capers. A Herald website follow-up described the robberies as a youth crime ram raid spree. The Herald called the raids a crime wave. News Hub called them a ram raid epidemic. And on Today FM, Tover O'Brien went one step further. When I lived in London a few years ago, for nearly two years, it felt like my camera operator and I were covering another terror attack every single week. We were travelling all over Europe, one horror to the next. Terrorists exploited weakness, copycats took inspiration, and hundreds of people died. Thankfully, no one has died as a result of these reckless raids yet, but there is this is still a form of terrorism. It is terrorism. In that monologue, O'Brien touched on the idea that media coverage could be helping fuel the ram raids. I do fear that the more we talk about it, the more we put it in the news and play the shocking CCTV footage, the more that some morons will think it's choice as to to copycat those crimes. That sentiment has been expressed by a number of commentators. Also on Today FM, former police detective Lance Burdett told Leah Parnipa the media may be contributing to the problem by giving offenders notoriety. So the media have a big part in this, and it's not the media's fault, but it's the way that it could be portrayed perhaps in a different way. The media might want to start thinking about the way, instead of having those action shots of of people going through, of having a lot more interviews with the owners of the shops post-event. Meanwhile on RNZ, Saturday morning host Kim Hill mused that it might help if Ram Raids were given a name that sounds a little less cool. Stuff's Ali Moore backed her call in a column for Stuff, where she pointed out that so-called king hits started to sound a lot less kingly when they were dubbed coward punches. Perhaps it would help de-escalate things if the media rebranded ram raids as coward shunts or broken window shopping, but that still wouldn't address a more structural issue with these stories. They tend to paint a picture of a horde of lawless youth thumbing their noses at society. As a result, audiences could be forgiven for thinking the raids are part of a much wider trend and youth crime is on the rise in Aotearoa. In fact, the most recent data from the Ministry of Justice shows the opposite. Crime rates for children under 13 and young people 14 to 17 years old have fallen by 65% and 63% respectively over the last decade, a fact pointed out by the Prime Minister on TVNZ's breakfast last Monday. We have seen, undoubtedly, we've seen a a spike in uh, this kind of activity, and the police have talked about the spike in ram raids. When we look at it in the context of youth offending, we've actually, over a number of years, seen the number of young people um, who are appearing in our youth courts coming down, and the repeat number of those returning coming down. So that's a positive trend. But for this particular activity, we have seen that spike. If audiences have a distorted picture of youth crime rates, that may just be a function of the way news works. The media understandably tends to hone in on the stuff that's exciting or rare. When it comes to crime, that means grisly assaults or audacious misdeeds. No one wants to read about the cars that don't ram through the front window of an old leaming. 
that hyperfocus on often statistically anomalous events has contributed to a well-studied phenomenon where news audiences tend to believe crime rates are going up even when they're going down. The same distortions can occur on other topics too. Here's the project host Patrick Gower introducing a story on 35-year-old Hayden Harvey who contracted pericarditis after taking the Pfizer vaccine. Now, if you got sick after taking the vaccine, what, what would happen if you did get sick after taking the vaccine and when you tried to get help, everyone just treated you like you were an anti-vaxxer? Now, I want to introduce you to a Kiwi who went through that and then things got worse, much worse. The project's lead host, Jesse Mulligan, went on to note that myocarditis and pericarditis are much more common from COVID than from the vaccine. But the story nevertheless circulated widely in social media channels devoted to vaccine misinformation, and that does seem to have had an impact. Here's cardiologist Dr Tom Paisley talking to One News about a rise in the number of people turning up to hospitals with what turn out to be unfounded fears they have suffered a vaccine injury. These patients will get a blood test, sometimes they get an ECG, and by far and away the majority of both of these tests are normal. Hayden Harvey's story was newsworthy, but covering rare events can leave audiences with the impression that those events are more common than they really are. When it comes to ram raids, some commentators have been raising the spectre of a youth crime wave to reinvigorate calls for tougher penalties on young offenders. Here's News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen blaming the raids on lighter sentences for young offenders and a more strict police pursuit policy, despite, again, both policies being in place during a large reduction in youth crime. We're seeing, you know, ram raids are not new. Kids getting away with lighter sentences than adults is not new. Crime bosses using kids for organised crime because of those lighter sentences is not new. And it doesn't help that the youth justice system is reportedly overloaded. But making it harder for cops to do their jobs, effectively tying their hands behind the backs, as National says, making it harder for them to catch these kids is almost certainly not helping. On News Hub Nation, Annabelle Lee Mather cautioned against that sort of reaction. But I think it's important that we don't overblow it into this huge community issue when actually there's plenty more rangatahi in our communities doing awesome mahi, staying home and doing their homework and, and making nice dancing videos on the TikTok. So did Professor Ian Lambie on the Q&A programme we highlighted at the top of this segment. We don't think we're going soft on crime. I think we need to go smart on crime. And smart on crime is thinking about how do we want fewer victims, better use of our taxpayers' dollars, and what the evidence says about how to actually intervene with this group of children. And really what we need to do is look at, you know, how do we deal with children that are between the ages of 5 and 14 years old, that are out of education, have behaviour problems, significant abuse and care issues, and what do we do and how can we provide the support and the interventions that are actually going to change their behaviour and improve their life outcomes? Katie Doyle, a reporter for Potiaki at Stuff, made similar points in a story about the drivers of youth offending and what can be done to divert young people away from the justice system. She talked to us about the media potentially creating a misleading narrative about youth crime and why that can have significant consequences. Youth crime is not ballooning, out-of-control situation, but the headlines would make you think otherwise. I mean, I've seen headlines like out-of-control youth and... Auckland not safe anymore as a youth affairs reporter. I've covered something called the Youth Justice Indicator Summary Report. It's found that youth crime rates for Tamariki aged 10 to 13 fell by something like 65% in the space of about a decade. And for Rangatahi, it fell 63% in that same period. While the headlines may make you think that youth crime is ballooning 
completely out of control. The statistics sort of don't back up that narrative. It's a hard one, though, isn't it? Because these are obviously legitimate stories, really concerning pictures, as you say, victims involved whose businesses have been devastated by this. How do you run stories about these kinds of things that don't give the audience this misleading or distorted impression about youth crime rates? I think it's about context around the drivers of youth crime, and that could be statistics or spokespeople. I mean, there are so many spokespeople you could go to about youth crime. There's Oranga Tamariki, there's police, there's youth workers. That can be difficult from a journalism perspective, right, because we have to deal with things like word limit, and you're trying to stack up information as things are happening in real time. But there are little ways that you can just add context. I also think that something, and you sort of touched on it, that we need to think about as journalists is our headlines. It can sometimes be quite easy to do an interview and take sort of the hardest quote or the most intense quote from that interview and make it the headline. We actually need to be really careful that just because a quote will probably get a lot of clicks, that it's actually telling the real story, that it's not just something someone said that doesn't really, I guess, portray the real situation. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually been quite a lot of good reporting on this stuff. I think of Georgina Campbell's reporting at The Herald. It's really nuanced. It carries, you know, quotes from the Children's Commissioner about how we shouldn't drive these people into prison and that will be counterproductive. But then the headline above them is often something like kitty crime capers or crime spree. And do we need to recognise a bit more that lots of people, research shows, will never read past the headline? Uh, Headlines are such a hard one, right? Because media companies want clicks and they want people to click on the stories and they want people to read the stories. I think if a story is really well written, people will read past the headline. Well, you'd hope they would. I think sometimes you don't need that intense headline that just doesn't portray the story. I think we need to be a bit more responsible around it. As you say, we highlight the sensational, the alarming, and that's fair enough in a way. No one wants to read about all the cars that didn't ram through the front window of a Noel Leeming. Can highlighting the unusual and the sensational, just in general though, give people a distorted idea of what's actually taking place in society? I think what happens is these unusual things happen and the media covers them, and the media oftentimes covers them quite well, I think, and there is a lot of nuance. But once the sort of spate of something finishes, the coverage completely drops off. We need to sort of make sure that we're actually continuing coverage, even if it's just little stories here and there, rather than sort of just doing the main thing and then moving on. We've already had commentators in the media using these recent raids to call for harsher sentences on youth offenders, for instance. Is there a problem with giving people the wrong impression about this sort of stuff and can it lead to really bad policy outcomes? I think it can. We as journalists have a responsibility to the truth and we have a responsibility to tell things like it is and we need to be doing that. And I don't think even slightly distorting something is really acceptable and I don't think it's what audiences deserve. What media outlets have provided that context and nuance during the recent Ram Raid coverage? I think they all did, but I think they all did it eventually. When I was in my old job at Radio New Zealand, I was a general news reporter, so I was always in the coverage. In my role now, I was sort of able to sit back and just watch it. 
And something I noticed was that there was a real pattern with how the things were reported. So we had at the start, the ram raids are happening and there was murmurings about youth. And then we had the, this is being driven by youth and we sort of had some headlines like youth out of control. And then we had the Charwell incident and that was on the 28th when police said a seven-year-old among some others had been found holding some stolen toys and other goods. And it was at that point where I noticed a real narrative shift in the media with how we were covering it in regards to young people. And I think on the 29th, the Toba Show had sort of multiple interviews about the ram raids and the crime. I feel as though when young people get to a certain point, we tend to lose our empathy and our sympathy a little bit. And I think had the people involved in Chartwell been 15, 16, 17, we may not have seen that shift in the reporting. There's been a bunch of commentary in the media about maybe it would help if Ram Raids got a rebrand to something that sounds a bit worse and doesn't give the offenders notoriety. Do you buy that? Probably not. I don't think that the young people going out to do this are necessarily thinking, I'm doing a Ram Raid. I do think the word Ram Raid gets clicks. But again, I don't think that they're going for it for like mainstream media notoriety. I don't think young people going out and doing Ram Raids on like a Friday night are then picking up the Weekend Herald to see what page they made it on. I think it's more of a social media notoriety aspects um, it seems that they're going for. And that's something I've seen talked about quite a bit in the media. How much of an impact is the fact that there's just amazing and startling pictures uh, and footage play into the fact that this has become a trend of which, which has kind of generated a bit of a moral panic? And how much does the fact of those pictures uh, influence the quite startling headlines that we see because print media don't have the option of running the footage and they want to convey how shocking the footage is. Yeah, the, the videos are astonishing and I definitely think it, it's astounding to see the cars smashing through the glass and I don't know what you do there because the footage is important and it's an important part of the story and I don't think it would necessarily be responsible to just cast it aside um, and say, oh, we're not going to show that. So I, I don't really know what you'd do in that situation, to be honest. So if someone rams a shop tomorrow and you're covering it from a news reporter's perspective, you know, you're in a rush, uh, what are the little things that you could include in your story that would help to give your readers a more accurate impression of the context of this? So, I, I mean, you'd start with the victim voice. I Personally, I would. And then I would maybe go to someone like a youth worker maybe in the area to say, you know, oh, well, what's happening here? What's, what, what are the things that are happening in your community that may be causing this? And what are the things that your community are doing to, to try and sort of mitigate this? And I think that's really easy. Like, it's quite easy to, to go and talk to people. That's sort of our job. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I would do. Or if you're in the biggest rush, just have a look around for some stats. There are lots around. You can type into Google, you know, youth crime stats, crime statistics. Um, there are ways to do it, even, even if you're in a rush. And honestly, even if it took a little bit more time, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to take more time to do a story and get it right and do it responsibly than take less time and tell half a story. Hey, thanks so much for joining me, Katie. Thank you.
It was Hayden Donnell talking to Stuff's Potiaki reporter Katie Doyle, formerly the Youth Affairs reporter at RNZ.